that's not a hymn we sing very often you're probably glad to say but it happens to say something of what I believe is said in Genesis chapter 30 if you go to an art gallery to have a look at the paintings and the great works of art it's customary and it's fitting that you stand back and see the whole thing the big picture as it were of course there are times when you need if you're interested in matters of art to go right close to a picture and see the little details because as you probably know better than I do uh, there are artists who have their own way of putting a signature you'll see a dog in a certain place or some other mark that as it were is the hand of a particular artist and when there are seats in an art gallery they're never there when I want them but when you see a seat in an art gallery it's almost certain to be about two yards, three yards away from the picture because we want to see the whole thing and yet so often when we read our Bibles and when we preach our sermons we tend to take just a, a, a few verses and focus on them in all their detail mind you since Cole has been with us we've learned what it is to have long readings and uh, he makes no apologies for that and I, I stand with him in, in, in that way but of course some of you are old enough to remember that the days were when uh, each sermon began with words like this my text for this evening is and it will be just a few words and those of you who know of or heard Martin Lloyd-Jones would know that he could preach a sermon 40 minutes long on one word in fact he preached three of them didn't he on the word so in John 3.16 God so loved the world but we've moved away from that now of course there's value the, the, the scripture is such a treasure that there's always something to be found in the detail but I think we don't too rarely do we step back and see the bigger picture people ask me about reading the Bible and where you begin and I usually say to them you need to read the whole of Mark's Gospel in one go because you get a good picture a broad picture not just a, an incident here or there but a broad picture of the truth of the life of Jesus now when I was given the uh, passage for this evening uh, I did what every preacher I assume every preacher does because I do <laughs> I read the passage through several times in different translations and then I looked and read it through in the context of the chapters on either side and I realised here in looking at Genesis 30 you're seeing but a couple of incidents in a longer story and I have to be honest and say to you the first thing I noticed was this that Jacob and his uncle Laban were very dubious, cunning, clever crooks they spent their time trying to deceive the other people and uh, 
when Paul, our administrator, said, what are you going to call this sermon? I said, you better stick to whatever Paul, whatever Cole has put, because people might not like it if I said that the, story, the title should be The Tale of Two Crooks. But, you see, they, they spend their time in a cunning way deceiving each other. And you can say they deserve one another, really, because one was cheating and the other one was cheating as well. And uh, I said in what I think was a London phrase, you wouldn't buy a second-hand car of either of them because they are unreliable, imperfect people. For example, of course, the earliest story of Jacob that most of us heard when we were children was the way in which uh, he deceived his mother, his brother rather, and tricked him into giving his, his father, to giving him his blessing. There, that was no last minute thing. His mother had thought it out very carefully and together they schemed to get the blessing put on Jacob rather than Esau. They tricked this poor elderly father whose eyes were growing a bit dim and they tricked him into blessing what really was the wrong one. What a cheat! But nobody told me when I first heard that story watch out, that, that was a very dodgy thing, a very bad thing to do. To deceive your brother and your father and to gain an advantage over him. And then if you look at our earliest introduction to Laban, he wasn't much better because you will know that Jacob fell in love with Rachel and uh, naturally Jacob asked for her hand in marriage. And he said, well, yes, you can marry my daughter Rachel but you have to work for me seven years to earn the right. And so he did. He worked hard for seven years. And then it seems to me that Laban turned around to him and said, sorry Jacob, I forgot to tell you that the custom in our land is you have to marry the first one. The oldest one has to be married first. So you better settle down for another seven years to qualify to marry Leah and then you can marry Rachel. That was a trick, a cunning trick. He was persuaded to work for a further seven years to marry the younger one. What a cheat. He knew what he was doing and he knew what he was doing when he started. But we pick up the story as it is this evening. First of all, we've seen how both of them were capable of cunning cheating. But as we pick up tonight in verse 26, Jesus, uh, Jacob asks Laban to let him go back to his homeland with his family to set up his own way of life. Because he believed, quite rightly, on the promise of God, that the promise of God that's there recorded in, in chapter 28, verses 3 and 4, the promise was given to Abraham that you... Through, uh, Joseph, uh, through Jacob may become a, a community of people 
Now, Laban was shrewd enough to realize that whilst Jacob had been with him, his farm, his shepherds, his flocks had really prospered and, and, and they'd done very well. And uh, when Jacob suggested leaving, Laban wasn't at all happy. And he did what uh, worldly people do, said, well, how much? I have a Yorkshire friend who says that's the first question you always ask. How much? And they are, he would say, how much have I got to pay to get out of this? And, uh, and he was thinking of how cheaply he could get away. But Jacob had another plan. A plan that was going to work to his advantage. And uh, he said, yes, I'll continue to look after your sheep, but we'll work it so that we gradually develop two flocks. One dark-skinned, flecked people and one whiter set of sheep or goats, we don't know which. And so he, he was saying to Laban, now let us work together and let me gradually build up my flock and I'll gradually build up yours as well. Now Jacob knew that he was doing this not for the benefit of his uncle but for his own benefit and by a scheme that nobody really understands he found a way of separating the speckled striped ones from the plain ones. Mike said to me, how did that work? I said, I've no idea. And uh, I have to say that the best of Old Testament authorities that I've looked up for this say nobody really knows what this business of uh, stripping the bark off a tree has to do with it. It probably reflects back on some ancient tradition, but nobody really knows. But the outcome very clearly in Jacob's mind was that he would build up a strong and a numerous flock and his uncle would get the rest, the leftovers. And the next chapter tells you how in fact in due course uh, it all happened and Jacob was able to go and uh, set up his own flock and go off and uh, the story continues. Now, you have to ask yourself, or you ought to ask yourself if you're a preacher, what is God saying to us today through this? It may be a, a fascinating story. It is the story of two people trying to trick one another. But what, it's in the Bible here for a purpose. What's there for us today? What's there that's relevant to us? It seems to me that the first thing is this. That throughout the Bible, right from the beginning of the book of Genesis, right through the prophets and the other writings of the Old Testament, through the Gospels to the vision of the new Jerusalem in, in the book of Revelation, you have the evidence 
and the way in which God's purpose was being worked out. So why are we saying that hymn? God was working his purpose out as the years succeed to years. In the mystery of God's providence, he chose, this is the whole doctrine of election, he chose that through Abraham and through the descending line of Abraham, he would reveal himself, his son would come, and the salvation of the world would be accomplished. All the way through, it was God's purpose that was being fulfilled. It was through Abraham, then Jacob, then Joseph, that God's line of succession was working out. And the first thing that that, that said to me is this, you see, God isn't constrained by our customs, by our, our way of doing things. You see, there's no doubt that uh, uh, Jacob and his mother were going against the tide. They were doing what they knew was not the custom. They knew that the custom was that the descent, the blessing, and all that goes with the blessing should go through the eldest. But they deliberately said no. We'll do it through his brother. God's will shapes history. We don't shape God. I mean, the same was worked out with Laban and Jacob. Having promised the the hand of Rachel, he was... confronted with that other challenge but he worked through it to fulfill the purpose of God which was going to be through Joseph Rachel's son not through the son of his other wives it's just a a very down to earth reminder for us as Christians and for us as Baptists particularly and I say that as a lifelong convinced Baptist one of our weaknesses is that we tend to think that the way we do it is right. You know the great saying of Baptists is, you do it your way, we'll do it God's way. And that's the kind of arrogance that you sometimes find. The first church of which I was the minister involved effectively setting up a church from scratch. We were planted on a housing estate in Dartford, and we had to start the life of a church. And one of the staff at college wrote to me and said, be careful what you start, because it will soon become like the law of the Medes and the Persians. We had no tradition, because we were a new church. But in the church there were people, we can name the town, who came from Canterbury, and they all said, well, when we were at Canterbury, we always did that. And others came from somewhere else. And, well, we always did that. And the tutor was right in saying, if you do something once, that's okay. If you do it twice, it becomes a tradition. If you do it three times, it's really the only way that things can ever be done. 
other churches that I've known and served have often said we we always do it like that and it got to me once and I said to people please don't say the words we always to me because what we always do is going to change the word new is uh, almost a, a swear word as far as churches are concerned we've always done it this way let's continue to do it that way I believe that God has many surprises ahead of us and I believe that things will change and things must change and I dare say I shall groan with the rest of you when they do but God is not constrained by the old ways we've done things the second thing is this God uses imperfect people like us to fulfil his will if God could use Jacob and Laban in fulfilling his purpose there's a fair chance he could use even you God uses imperfect people to do his will it's sadly true that in most churches and you can work this out for yourself if you care to work it out here that something like 80-90% of the work in any church is done by 10% of the people and uh, that kind of ratio is fairly commonly found in our churches except in small churches because if you're a member of a small church you have to sink or swim because if, if you don't do it nobody else, nobody else can but very low percentage of the people do a large percentage of the work there's always a need for help in one way or another but people will say I, I couldn't do that I'm not good enough I'm not a good enough Christian to do that I can't do that I can't do the other we ought to work on the basis that says not why shouldn't why should I do that but we should say why shouldn't I is there any reason why I shouldn't undertake that piece of service God uses imperfect broken people like Jacob and Laban to fulfil his work yes he can use anyone he chooses but Jesus makes it clear that the kind of people he looks for is those who willingly offer themselves for whatever he may ask of them. He shows us that the love of God is completely open and free and he expects of you and me as Christians that we are open to do whatever he asks. And all this came together for me uh, last Sunday when Amongst the Methodists, it was the time for their annual covenant service. And this is one of the good things. I'm not a great fan of Methodism, but this is one of the great things about Methodism. They have this annual covenant service 
the words of which have changed very little over the years. Let me give you some of the words. Each one is, required, is expected to say, I am not my own, to God, this, I am not my own, I'm yours. Rank me with whom you will, put me to doing or put me to suffering. Let me be employed by you or set aside for you. Exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be empty. Let me be full. Let me have all things or let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. God is working his purpose out, even through imperfect people like Jacob and Laban. God is working his purpose out and he's not constrained by our traditions and our, our way of doing things. He asks of us what is expressed so well in the Methodist covenant. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and your disposal. A moment of prayer. Lord, help us to echo those words in our hearts that whatever it is you have for us to do in the working of your purpose out throughout time and eternity we want to offer ourselves to be a part of that kingdom a part of the working out of that purpose Lord we know we're not perfect and we marvel that you use such imperfect people as us but Lord, freely, wholeheartedly, willingly, we put ourselves at your disposal. In Jesus' name, Amen.